Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by Edwin, co-founder and CEO of Siren. So Edwin, can you give us an elevator pitch? Sure. Uh, at Siren, we're building a new standard of clinical assessment for serious mental illness by leveraging our own proprietary speech-based AI technology. Cool. A lot of words there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Right, I mean, we can break that down. I mean, serious mental illness as a concept revolves those clinical mental health disorders that require interaction with physicians and clinical care, right? These typically involve schizophrenia and bipolar disorders. But as the name suggests, they're extremely severe. And as you can imagine, they're very devastating. At the root of their impacts is the fact that the system for these illnesses are very reactive in nature. What can, do you mean it's reactive in nature? In that it's only treated once mm -hmm. it's happened and had its devastating impacts. Right. I see. So and it's like too late by the time they treat. Typically, like yes, way illness. too late, right? The best solution really is, as with a lot of healthcare, these kind of preventive interventions. Can you give an example? So like with schizophrenia, for example, mm -hmm. I always thought that it just developed and progressed over time, right? Like it just, it's a genetic there are genetic disorder. contributors to schizophrenia, okay. for sure. I mean, it is familial in nature, but and I guess a concrete example is that, you know, perhaps you start feeling that something's a little bit off mm -hmm. in that, you know, you're starting to feel certain delusions or starting to start to hear things here and there. And basically, maybe you have other traits like some sort of social withdrawal at some point, yeah. right? The point of when you get into the system right now is when you have typically a psychotic episode, right? So then you end up becoming hospitalized and you end up in hospital for a few months, right? But the ideal situation is that you can catch that early and yeah. that indeed is possible. You have early intervention teams set up that aim number one to catch it before it happens but also number two to catch it as soon as it happens to intervene early. So you target all serious mental health conditions? Yeah I mean I think given the complexities of healthcare it's very hard mm. to sort of deconstruct uh, each mental health disorder into its own isolated uh, channel uh, so we do have to look at all yeah. of them but our particular focus is on psychoses. Okay psychosis like like bipolar and schizophrenia so i mean mm. psychosis is the term we use to describe those cluster of symptoms that are prevalent within schizophrenia and bipolar and they typically refer to those things like delusions and hallucinations i mean the disorders in which this is manifested are the ones that we're targeting initially interesting and you studied psychiatry right yeah uh, my undergrad degree was in biomed and my phd work looks at psychiatry as well Oh, is this related to your PhD? You said you did genetics in psychiatry. I did, yeah. It's, it's actually not got much to do with my PhD at all, but it's yeah. got a lot of relevance to my co-founder's PhD. Um, okay. So she did her work looking at speech and mental health. And basically okay. a lot of the knowledge and technology underlying our own algorithms are based on what she's done in her PhD. Okay, so looking at how you can essentially coach someone out of psychosis? Uh, no, no. So the, the, the idea is not at all with therapeutics, it's to oh, ensure okay. that we get the assessment and evaluation piece right. You look at the tonality of the voice to yeah. be able to tell when someone's going to have schizophrenia. Exactly. So we, we have over a hundred different features from speech that we extract, both to do with what you're saying and how you say it. So the linguistics and the acoustics that mm -hmm. are then used to make these readouts. And what's like the current method used by psychiatrists? Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the healthcare system for serious mental illness is quite complex. But I think as of right now, generally speaking, this evaluation process is reliant on very extensive clinical interviews with the patients mm -hmm. and with people related to the patients, so their carers or their family or friends, right? An interviewed follows typically a structured process. For example, in the States, they use the SIPs. Here they use the CARMs alongside a suite mm -hmm. of other questions to sort of determine 
how at risk, rather, these individuals are for psychosis. Interesting. What made you want to start this company? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, honestly, this company was started through a series of fortunate events. And I think it really rests within my two co-founders, Julie and Raheem. They both had very personal mm-hmm. experiences with serious mental illness in terms of their relationships. And I think hearing them tell me their stories of how the clinical system has failed them was very inspiring in terms of making me empathize and want to help change something. You know? And I think a lot of my core values as a person what I want, with what I want to do with my life revolves around that idea of connecting with yourself and with other people. Yeah. And you know, serious mental illness is something that typically robs you of that opportunity. Did you see like a higher incidence of serious mental illness after COVID? Interesting. I mean, I haven't looked at the data myself, so I don't have any clear objective data for that. Mm. I would presume so, because I mean, the incidence of depression, anxiety went through the roof, right? Yeah. But I think COVID stripping the ability of interacting with clinical care through traditional means might have exacerbated certain problems with serious mental illness, for sure. But then that's really interesting, right? Because we're talking right now about how psychosis is usually treated by locking someone up, essentially, in a mental facility. (laughs) I didn't say those words. (laughs) But it doesn't make sense because if we look at COVID and the incidence of depression and anxiety rising from people being essentially left in isolation, how do we then see isolation as a treatment? Yeah, I mean, isolation really isn't a treatment. I think these days, you know, we don't isolate people at all with psychosis. The gold Mm. standard of treatment for psychosis actually involves these coordinated efforts with several teams of people Mm. to ensure that the person recovers with support around them. You know, I think it's very important that we break that stigma of psychosis. You know, it's not like it was 60, 70 years ago where you have institutionalization, you know. I think there's a recognition that it's a real condition that requires a lot of care and lots of effort. And and very importantly, uh, the proper evaluation to ensure that they get sent down the right treatment pathway. And I think that's all bottleneck that we're trying to solve for, ensuring that we can evaluate properly so that people get the right treatments. Do you also look at genetic evaluation? No, no. So our, our tool is okay. completely revolving but like, around speech. Have you looked at that during your PhD? Yeah, I actually have. I mean, I think uh, the concept of psychiatric genetics is, is yeah. fascinating. I think a linear one-to-one where you can match someone's genetic code to exactly. their likelihood of depression, that, that's unfortunately, right now, a distant reality. What we have progress with is that we can look at how the variations in genes relative to yourself Mm. affect your likelihood in terms of variation of outcome. But it's not so much a direct one-to-one mapping that you can do with genetics. Like, there's not a specific risk factor in your genetics for depression and anxiety only alone. Well, I think it's really interesting that a lot of medications used for one mental health condition can actually be like cross-applied. Like we see this all the time in biotech when someone gets an approval for depression. They try to use it for a bunch of other exactly. indications, right? And, and it does work. So it's like, is there like a genetic mapping component where you can like do a precision medicine approach? Because there's just so many therapeutics available. I mean, I, you can't rule that out one day. You know, I think one mm-hmm. day that is fundamentally possible, but... I think the issue is that fundamentally, we don't really understand with enough resolution the causes and underlying processes that take place to manifest these mental health conditions, right? So, for example, with SSRIs, we know in principle how they work, right? They interact with the receptors, but we don't exactly know all the downstream pathways they activate to manifest the outcome of improved mood, for example, right? Yeah. So at the current stage that we're at with our understanding of pharmacology, I, I don't see that being a feasible approach right now. I mean, which is why we focused on this particular biomarker in voice. I think it's not something that's inherent within you from birth, right? It's something that develops over time and it's very dynamic and also very easy to access. Whereas with genetics, yeah. you know, do a blood draw. I mean, now that you've 
spent so long looking at genetics and psychiatry. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's genetic or do you think it's environmental? That's a cop-out answer, but it's both. It's both. <laughs> it's, it's both. It's both. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to put it is there is a genetic component to mm -hmm. mental health disorders. I mean, it's why there's very clear inheritance patterns, right? Mm. But I think the manifestation is heavily reliant on your upbringing and the environment around you, right? And honestly, to be quite frank, I think the current system of classifying mental health disorders is relatively outdated, but I mean, we don't have to get into that into depth. Is there an, a genetic inheritance component to like bipolar and depression? Uh, absolutely. So well? yeah, they all have some sort of gene, mm. uh, some sort of familial inheritance trait for sure. In that, you know, with twin studies or with family studies, you'll see that there are patterns uh, that involve uh, genetics in these conditions passing on. Uh, but again, there's not that clear one-to-one -one mapping that people yeah. hope there is. No, I find that really interesting. I, want, I wonder how much of it is like mimicking behaviors mm. as well. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, especially, you know, with the familiar considerations happen to be mimicking the behavior of your parents growing up as well. Mm. But yeah, I think at this point in time, it's just way too complex a behavior to really distill down into something that we have right now, at least. Interesting. So, so you're still currently finishing your PhD. That's correct. Six months left. Six months said. left. Yep, almost there. And how has it been running your company at the same time as doing this PhD? Yeah, no, it's been very hectic. I mean, I think I'm very lucky to have extremely supportive supervisors. You know, I mean, both mm -hmm. of my supervisors are in the space of psychiatry, obviously, but um, they both understand my aspiration in this space. And I've got a, some collaborators who are extremely understanding as well. But I think, honestly, it just comes down to very effective time management. And mm. unfortunately, I, I can't promote this, but I think, you know, there is some loss of work-life balance. I do spend a lot of time working just because I have to fulfill both requirements. I'm very fortunate that I think most of my PhD research work was completed before it really got crazy with Siren. Uh -huh. So I was able to get the bulk of that complex stuff done out of the way. And now it's about publishing the papers and sort of GPT. making... <laughs> no comment. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's about getting that output there as fast as yeah. possible rather than doing the, the hardcore research at this stage. So it makes it easier. That's good. How long have you been building Siren for? About a year and three months now. So, I mean, this all started oh. in March last year after I met with Julian and Rahim. We started with a competition at King's College London called the Idea Factory. Okay. Yeah. Idea Factory. Indeed. And then you also ran Nucleate, right? Ah, I wouldn't say I ran Nucleate, but I was, I was part of one of the early teams in London who, who started bringing Nucleate from the US into the UK. So I was very fortunate to meet some important people from the Nucleate team, like Isabel James, the pioneers of Nucleate UK. Yeah. And because I was sort of somewhere in the circle, they let me come in. And I mean, it's a great mission, you know, accelerating biotech with people in academia. I'm, I'm all for that. So... It was very easy for me to sort of join and try to help where I can. And did you always want to be in a startup or did that come recently? No, no. I mean, I, it's very interesting. I think you tend to forget how you were like uh, in, in years past. But I think all throughout my undergrad into my PhD work itself, there was always that feeling that I want to do something within the startup space. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it was not partly because I think there was this image I had of how amazing it was, but also because I think it was the most efficient way to sort of make impact, right? Yeah. But I didn't intend on starting a company during my PhD. You know, I thought I'd build up yeah. the skills over time and then start it. And then I met Juliana and Rahim. And then, you know, we just it had just a chance. Happened. Yeah, we had a chance. I yeah. think basically we had some really fundamentally cool technology that I think could actually change clinical care, right? And you know, when you mm -hmm. have the opportunity, you got to jump at it. We may be too early, but you have to try. Yeah. And what would you say is like the number one thing you've learned in terms of what to do when building a healthcare company? Yeah, I think it's extremely important that you 
check in again and again to ensure you have that clarity of thought. Because I mean, it's extremely complex, right? There are so yeah. many different stakeholders, and especially with a product like ours, which is deeply scientific, you have so many parallel pipelines. So mm. I mean, I make it a, I put a conscious effort into always centering with the team to ensure that we're always aligned, number one, on our mission, but on number two, exactly what we want to execute on a week on week. I know it's a bit vague, but I mean, it's Can about clarity of thought. Can you give a, a story thought. or example of how you basically found that out? Because I'm guessing things Oof. were maybe not clear at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think the first five to six months of the startup was very much an extremely mm. lost explorative journey, you know, just wading yeah. through talking with everyone in the world that would speak to us and just trying to figure out exactly what we did. I think we changed our well, implementation idea like 50 times within the span of like yeah. three months, right? You know, concrete examples is like, I think we started thinking about going to GPs first. You know, I think our first initial idea was let's go to the GP and focus on that. But then we got pulled into the direction of psychiatry, we got pulled into the directions of larger systems, we got pulled into other geographies. And at some point, three or four months in, we had so many conversations simultaneously, but no real output for that, you know? That is a real problem in healthcare. It it's is. like, how do you find the stakeholder you need to build for? Exactly, exactly. And I think it's really hard to gauge, especially as someone who's a first-time founder in this space, which of these stakeholders are the one that will, number one, align with your values and your mission, but also number two, okay. actually execute. <laughs> yes. You. But how did you figure that out? Time, mistakes and time. I think we sunk a lot of time into certain stakeholders that just didn't pay off. Yeah. And I mean, those such as say mini failures, I suppose, forced us to sort of reset and sit down like, okay, what do we have to offer now? What do we have to offer when we have mm. the fully developed product? And whom amongst this network of people align best with our values? Yeah. Right? And that's how we zeroed in on these specialty clinics that look at early intervention in psychosis, right? You mm. have these highly specialized clinics that look at preventive interventions based around very comprehensive assessments. Mm. Right? There's an immediate value alignment, maybe a smaller initial market, but very immediate alignments and a long-term vision that aligns with our own in that they want to ensure preventive care for psychosis. Mm. And what was like the number one thing not to do? And can you give a story? A thing not to do and a story. Yeah. Some of the stories might implicate me a little bit. <laughs> I got to be terrible here. Um, what not to do? I think at times the startup mentality forces you to, to rush into things, mm. right? It's all about speed and execution. The problem is that within the healthcare, you're dealing with situations that, you know, without being exaggerative, are, are life or death, mm. right? So there are certain things with, with administrative procedures and the proper documentation that you're really tempted to skip and run through that mm. will inevitably bite you in, in the ass, essentially. Well, especially if you're working with hospitals. Especially working with hospitals, especially working with sensitive data, right? Mm. I mean, I think luckily, you know, we always had data security at the top of our priorities. But what we didn't have at the top of our priorities was documentation. And we mm. paid the price in that, you know, it took us a good couple of months to sit down and sort of retrospectively ensure we had everything documented properly, right? Is that because they had to do like, like a quality assurance? Oh, luckily, so we're not at that stage yet. If we had to do that, then yeah. we would have been fined heavily. But mm. I mean, it's even at the point of ensuring that we could come to the customer or the clinic saying that we have these documents in check. Mm. We didn't have those processes set up because we didn't know we had to do them. Right. We oh, is that like the through. QMS? Account. Yeah, it's a QMS yeah. setup. So now we have a QMS setup. We, you know, we've yeah. put the money into it. and We're automating that. That's great. <laughs> Make my life easier, right? Yeah. But, but I mean, that obviously, I think these admin burdens, at least on my end, I tend to try and ignore them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But you can't in healthcare. You really can't. Yeah. So don't 
ignore the admin. Don't ignore the admin. I, I, and honestly, I think generally across founding, maybe you agree with this, but mm. I think what makes a good founder is doing the admin and the small stuff. You know, it's like, how good are you replying to emails? How good are you like the small things? How can you make someone feel? Like these small things, I think they're the difference between a really good founder and a founder. You know? mm. What are some like hacks? Hacks. To, uh, <laughs> to make yourself more efficient at admin. I heard about Brex the other day. Right, what's Brex? I've never heard of this before. I think you have to have like a US C Corp to do it, uh -huh. but it can be a subsidiary. So it's basically, I don't know why I'm advertising for Brex, <laughs> but like they have like apps similar to that where you just like put in a company card and then it automatically does all of like the reconciliation hmm. stuff. I wow. mean, I use Dext now, mm -hmm. but I still have to email all the receipts and everything. Right, yeah, I mean, I don't know. admin hacks. I think it, it depends on the type of founder you are, or the type of person you are, right? Like I yeah. think I work best within certain structures, right? So I like keeping things very organized on the notion, right? And in terms mm. of clutter, I hate clutter, right? I can't stand when my email inbox has like even three emails that's unread, right? So oh, wow. I, I reply as quick as possible so that we lose the clutter. Or if I don't reply, put a reminder to reply so it goes away, right? Whereas, I mean, my co-founder, for example, I think she operates a lot more within chaos. You know, she thrives under some chaos. So mm. she, th those hacks don't work for her. And hacks to keep her on track are other sort of reminders and recurring meetings, for example, that keep her in check so that she can go off and do her thing but stay focused on the mission, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, get, I think it depends on the founder, really. How do you balance like these different personalities together? Ooh, that's yeah. a very, yeah, I mean, I think almost inherently they balance each other out. You know, I'm very grateful for the team I have. I think we have fundamentally a very strong team from a actual founder market mm. fit, but also I think genuinely in our personalities, we, we balance each other very well. You know, I think each of us have some shared traits like stubbornness. Yeah. You know, we're all very strong-minded, I put it that way. But at the same time, I think each of our strengths almost inherently already balance each other out. So I'm quite fortunate that I don't really have to put work into balancing it out. We do it automatically. And, and are you guys like bootstrapping at the moment or? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, as PhD students, we don't get paid much, do we? You know, there's not much uh, yeah. we can bootstrap with. We've been very fortunate. Uh, September last year, we got an Innovate UK grant okay. that basically formed the basis of our entire proof of concept and the core technology that we have now. Um, and in January, we received our first check from an institutional investor through Conception X. So Conception X have a partnership with a VC firm. Now I didn't properly. know Conception X had a venture arm. Yeah, so they have a partnership specifically oh, okay. with a VC. It's really cool. And we were the first iteration of that oh, cool. partnership. So they gave us a small check in January, and that gave us enough runway basically to well, pay one of my co-founders part-time, get some product people on board, get a patent underway. We opened our fundraising amount, our fundraising around last okay. month. So I mean, I think... We were trying to build up the evidence base for me to say that I'm confident in us succeeding with a longer term study, which is sort of the next big pivotal. Oh, you have to get Nina Cap. I think they were worried about the, the scientific risk inherently. Okay. I think scientific risk. Why is there a scientific risk? I mean, I don't believe there is, but I think I didn't get the time and the scope to be able to convince but them. But can you of it. explain like the scientific risk problem? I don't get it. But I, it you're all PhD students in psychiatry. Yes. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be an issue in terms of collecting sufficient data to convince the um, lay person that this is going to work. Collecting sufficient data from voices of patients who have psychosis. Or at, at risk of psychosis as well, right? If we, what we want to show is that predictive piece, right? So you basically just need like to run a study where you have like observational study where, is that what you're running now? 
I mean, it's what we're speaking yeah. with Ryan about, I suppose, to oh, some extent, okay. right? Like, how can we get some of this pilot data in yes. quickly and cheaply? So that we can get the data for right. the fundraise. Uh, we, we, we have an FDA pivot yeah. set up um, already, ready okay. to go. It's just, I think, certain institutional investors want higher de-risking before uh. we go into the FDA pivotal. I, and I think I haven't had, through narrative or through scope, just haven't had the opportunity to push why we have enough science already as is. Yeah, I think that observational study might be good just to also help with like traction data to show exactly, that people exactly. want this so, thing. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I think, you know, we want to get working with the clinics. Of course, we're tight on budget right now, right? So there's not much left to work with, but we're trying to explore creative ways that we can collect this data. You know what? I think the main thing is maybe that you need to sell it like the long term. So like, because mm. I know that you are so set on this being like a test right now, and it makes sense to keep it that way. But ultimately, if you run this study and you collect all this data, it could become like a therapeutic later. And I feel mm. like maybe you need to sell it as like a, a long-term, a long-term play. Yeah, I mean, it's something we have to consider now. Like, is, is there yeah. a bigger market that we can sort of capture and conquer, right? Because um, it's like, you should be like, I think it's solving for psychosis, essentially. That is, that's the main mission, yeah. it really is. Like, um, sol- let's solve psychosis. And then I think that's like, super strong yeah of course it, i mean that that's the goal i mean i think the dtx space is relatively saturated so i mean mm. differentiation within dtx is a is an interesting conversation in itself it is saturated in mental health it's super saturated yeah. but in psychosis not really not so much but i think the problem with getting patients onto psychosis apps is and even patients with depression it's like continuous use like, how do you make it super easy? It is, it is. That's why I feel like the Aura Ring is very good mm-hmm. because it just like... Passively. Some, yeah, passive. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's one whole avenue. But I mean, I think at this moment in time, like yeah. our focus really is on the clinical tooling aspect yeah. of things. I think, you know, our thesis is that the clinical systems and infrastructure exists for optimal psychosis care already. Yeah. It just can't handle the capacity yet because they don't have the necessary accuracy or labor force to triage everyone, mm. right? So where we see our tool fitting in right now, at least in the moment, is as that clinical piece, that clinical tooling that can unlock the power of the existing system um, to optimize psychosis care. Awesome. I mean, that leaves us well into our last question. Right. So what's the number one impact you want to leave on the world with Siren? Yeah, I think with Siren, the, the number one impact is we're hoping to ensure that we can bring in a preventive era um, of clinical care for serious mental illness. Something that I think exists already, but has not yet been scalable. And hopefully we can help achieve that with our tool. So in addition to the Health Creators podcast, you'll also find everything you need on healthcreators.co. That includes our vendor selection and CRO databases, um, conference selector tool, and also investors you should be talking to. When you log into healthcreators.co, you'll also have direct access to Nurut for clinical development and a community of founders building in healthcare.